Welcome, everyone. I'm Sandra Bargeman. A few years ago, I wrote and performed a solo show called The Edge of Every Day, which was an exploration of the rough edges and contradictions we all face and grapple with. The show hit a nerve, and the relevance of the topic would only grow over time more than I could have foreseen. So, here we are. Real talk with real people, sharing stories and perspectives that spark provocative invitations to leap out of what's safe. On the edge of every day. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. We are live in the hive tonight. Thank you for joining me on this, the eighth episode of The Edge of Every Day here on talkradio.nyc. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, and for those of you who don't know me yet, I encourage you to check out my bio on talkradio.nyc, or of course you can visit my website, sandrabargeman.com, or you can tune in to any of my previous episodes. In a nutshell, this show is about celebrating triumphs, pushing boundaries, and exploring rough edges. Through conversations and shared stories with friends and colleagues, it's my hope that we can begin to understand our edges. And what I mean by edges is those places where we are fearful, those places where we are resistant to change, those places where paradoxes and contradictions live in our beliefs and our understandings, both internally and collectively in the world around us. Listen, we live in edgy, challenging times, but life isn't black or white. It's gray. It's an embrace of both. And the more we recognize our own edges and get real about them, the more we can help others to do the same. And that, I fully believe, can help to change the world. So thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, it's time to introduce our guest this evening. Everett Quinton is an actor, director, and playwright, and was a longtime member of Charles Ludlam's Ridiculous Theatrical Company, where he was an actor, director, and costume designer, and from 1987 to 1997, served as the artistic director. While there, he appeared in over 75 productions, including Camille, Bluebeard, Exquisite Torture, Turds in Hell, Conquest of the Universe, Utopia Inc., The Bells, Movie Land, Galas, A Tale of Two Cities, Obie Award, and The Mystery of Irma Vep, Obie and Drama Desk Awards, just to name a few. Most recently, he starred off-Broadway in the hit Drop Dead Perfect, produced by the Penguin Rep and directed by Joe Brancato and in Antony and Cleopatra at the McCarter Theatre Center. Everett recently directed the beautiful revival of Charles Ludlum's The Mystery of Irma Vep at Red Bull Theatre. Other credits include Twelfth Night at the Arizona Theatre Company, Shakespeare in Hollywood, Helen Hayes Award at the Arena in D.C., Women Beware Women Calloway Award, and The Witch of Edmonton at Red Bull Theatre. Tennessee Williams, now the Cats with Jeweled Claws at the Williams Festival in Provincetown and as part of La Mama's 50th anniversary season. George Osterman's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Brother Trucker's Bessie Award and Richard and Michael Simon's Murder at Mincing Manor Drama League Award, again, to name a few. Ever to starred in his own one-person show, Bitch Slapped by God, at London's Drill Hall. Film and TV credits include The Louise Log, Nurse Jackie, Louie, Natural Born Killers, Deadly Illusion, Miami Vice, and Law and Order. In 2011, Everett received the Off-Broadway Alliance Award, Legend of Off-Broadway. Welcome, Everett! Hello, hello. Hey, my darling daughter. <laughs> it's so great, great, great to have you. Thank you so much oh, for being on. I like oh, my friends in high places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's dive in. 
I want to talk about, of course, how I'm starting all of my podcasts, how we know each other. And we met, I had the great, great good fortune to be on stage with you in the Madison Square Garden national tour of Cinderella, starring the one and only Eartha Kitt and you as the glorious evil stepmother. Yes, 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 yes. And of course, I was, I was, you were my mama. I was a glorious, I was the tall evil stepsister. But you knocked him dead every night. Though. Oh, my God. Uh, I, what a fun we had with that. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, tell me, how was that experience for you? I mean, I remember talking to you about it now, but share it with our, our it audience. Great. It, it's the only tour I ever did. It's the only national tour I ever did. And I, I got lucky and got in and uh, I had to wait. I waited like a couple of months before they told me I had it because they were star searching and they needed a star. And Hello, star, you. No, but if a star wanted the role, if a big name star yes. wanted the role, I wouldn't have gotten it. And then they got their second star and then I got the role. Oh, and I was like, really happy. I was like, really happy. Well, you were just phenomenal. Talk well, about fun. rave reviews. I was, I was phenomenal. Born evil. I was born evil. <laughs> it's, it was so, it was so much fun playing sour and evil. Um, I, so I well, I have a couple of wonderful fun memories of you. Um, one of them is is a kind one. You were so incredibly. I came in. For our listeners, I came. I didn't start with uh, with it. I came in on the second leg, and so I I was worked into what had and added to what was already created. And so to be in the scene with you, Everett and Natasha, um, and to I it, it was just freaking hilarious. But you know, I had to bring my own sort of chops and things and and one of the things i brought was this ridiculous bird call slash crazy ape that somehow got worked in and i don't even remember how it got worked in but it was worked in and every single night i got this huge round of applause and the next line was yours and you were so kind you never stepped on that you just let it happen and i was blown away by that. I don't know if I ever told you that. I don't know. Did I? Did I, why, I will go back to um, Shakespeare in Hollywood, and uh, <laughs> it's, you learn from that. And uh, oh, who's mate Lacey? Um, Maggie Lacey w was right on before me in that, and she got a huge laugh the first night I stepped on it because I wasn't. <laughs> it was our first night out, and I didn't. No one's expected it, but I never stepped on it again. I, no, 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 no. Oh, it was all about a sign, baby. We no, oh, well, just your generosity of spirit shines through in your talent and your friendship. What goes around comes around, and that's Ain't a that natural the truth, fact. baby. Um, <laughs> but no, my other. Oh my! I was just going to say my other one was did you chewing this. Well, of course you chew the scenery every night, but this one night, oh my God, we all did. The whole family chewed the scenery. That's what I loved about it. But this one night, the we were we had finished the scene. We were in front of the house, and it didn't go out, and and the inside of the house didn't roll on, and it was me and you and Natasha and Brooks, and. Uh, the mortification on our faces and you went off. You took over and chewed up the scenery and we were all peeing ourselves and 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 mortified at the same time because you were so brilliant. You just saved the scene. You made up the scene that, that moved us along. I remember one time the furniture fell off the, 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 the pallet as it came in <laughs> and the chair fell off and... Uh, and I couldn't make you two do it because you were the princesses. And Cinderella, Jamie Siegler was over on the other side. And I said, look what you made me do, Cinderella. And come over here and help me. And we got the thing back on. And I said, I'm going to beat you to an inch of your life. And Andre, who was holding the bird, said he had to turn around because he started cracking up. Oh, no. There were many moments like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, well, that's the advantages of getting older. You're, yeah, you're truly. Less you're afraid of things. Ain't that the truth? Uh -huh. well, so let's 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 move to your 
your childhood. Oh, um, God. Well, <laughs> where the evilness began. Um, how was your childhood? Did you always know that you wanted to be an actor? Did your family go to theater? What was it like? No, we didn't go to my parent. My wait a minute, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a picture of my mother and father. Wait. Okay. Good. 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 How much do we love this? I'm not gonna break into song. I promise. I forgot to get this. This explains. Look at how pretty they were. Oh my! I this explains. Yeah, yeah. She was very beautiful and he was very handsome, but they were like oil and water and they should not have been married. And they were. And now I love my brothers and sisters, but I But no, no, we didn't we never had anything. So we didn't go to theater. We didn't But you didn't, you you went to movies and, and did you know you wanted to be an actor? I didn't. I thought I was nuts. <laughs> I did not know that Are they the way I was carrying on was like one time I did this dance in the deli and I was like, after was so ashamed of myself. And I didn't realize till later that it was aspiration. And yeah. Oh, and there was no, and when, did, you know, when did you realize that it was aspiration? Not till I was older. Not when, what, you know, when I, when I got into the ridiculous and started getting rid of all the nuts, when I realized, when I found my way to the ridiculous Mm-hmm. That's when I realized I had aspirations uh-huh. and that I was, I, I just thought I was this bizarre queer who, li- I, you know, even though I had seen other queers, there's a tendency to think you're the only queer in the world and that you're, you're a target. And so you become kind of guarded and stuff. So I was very unhappy. And then I got into the ridiculous, but you know, but my mother, like my parents were boobs and my mother used to say, oh, we should get that voice trained. And there was no, they no one knew how to do that. No one knew how to do it. It would be a good idea to do it. They heard that voice training existed, but they didn't know how. And they associated it with you, of course. Well, I used to sing in the church choir, except I got thrown out on Christmas Eve because me and Freddie Signiano had a fight. We'll, we'll talk about that later, how you're making up for that. <laughs> no, but my Freddie Signiano said my mother and father were home having sex in the bathtub, and I punched him. <laughs> and we got thrown out of the corner. <laughs> uh, well, really? they, they, I could see them having sex. Troublemaker the and non-singer. I could see them having sex in the bathtub. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the idea that your parents had sex. I mean, I was in the eighth grade. Oh my seventh, god! I was in the seventh grade. It's like so. So your whole family life, your brothers and sisters, did they all? Was it? Were they supportive? Your brothers and sisters supportive of this creative you see, like most, madness no. and this great juice? No, we lived in such madness. Mm. that there was no cleaving unto each other. We were not, like, I have friends who say, oh, we're having a family reunion and 10,000 people. And we go, oh, God, just think 10,000 of us. No, no, today we're very happy together, my brothers and sisters, and we're loving and tight. But and there, it was so not, beautiful. There was nothing there to um, cling to. We yeah. were all running in our, we were all, running for our lives. I spent the first half of my life literally running for my emotional life. Okay, um, so then this brings you to, uh, okay, We I'm just getting our two-minute break. Uh-huh. Um, so we're going to talk about when we come back, getting to New York City and getting into the ridiculous. And when we come back with Everett Quinton, that's what we'll be talking about. Stay tuned. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. with our guest Everett Quinton on the edge of every day. So let's let's get into the ridiculous theatrical. So it was founded in 1967 by Charles Ludlam and it was based on the genre theater of the ridiculous. And I'm just going to read for those who are listening in that don't know about the genre. I'm going to read a quick little thing and then I'll ask you to give all of your depth and nuance to the understanding. Um, Theater of the Ridiculous was a distinctly 60s phenomenon that emerged in America just as conservative 50s attitudes were fading. The counterculture was brewing and anti-Vietnam sentiment was rising. The genre arose in what was then New York's gritty downtown lofts, off-off-Broadway theaters and unconventional performance spaces. By queering experimental theater and introducing non-actors, drag queens, and fantastical stage constructions and costumes to its productions, Theater of the Ridiculous was a rebellion against the popularity of naturalistic or realistic theater from decades prior. So, of course, I, I'm going to ask you to talk about um, the nuances again and the depth around the whole genre and the style of the ridiculous. But before we dive into that, can 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 I ask you about Charles, meeting Charles? How did you meet him? And did you know, I mean, Ludnomania had happened already. Yes, it was already going. And when you, uh, just starting, yeah. And um, And then you met him. And did you know of the ridiculous theatrical company? Nothing. So tell us about that story. I, well, like I said, I was a young little queer who f- I came to, I found Manhattan. I found the village in 73. Mm. And, and I just started hanging out in the village. And then I, I remember, um, like I, I would hang out and I closed the bars on Christopher street. And then I would end up hanging out on the steps of St. Veronica's church after the bars closed. And it turns out, um, oh, um, sweet William was part of that crowd. And Jackie Curtis was part of this crowd. And I didn't know them. All I knew them were these people. I didn't know I was hanging out with ridiculous luminaries. I just we were just people hanging out on the street. And then in, in 75, I was walking. I was, I stayed out in the barn. I was cruising Christopher Street. It was February night. It was freezing cold. And I was standing on the doorway. And Harry Katukas, the great H.M. Katukas, used to, I before I met him, I had seen him. And, he, and then when I met him, he called me the doorway Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> and, and standing in that doorway on Christopher Street next to the, it was then the Theater de Lise. 
I was standing there and I I wanted to hook up, I guess. And then I saw this guy walking and I didn't, he walked and I didn't pay attention. I was just walking up straight and then I turned and he was there. Charles was standing next to me. And then we went back to this house, which is this house. And we did the nasty for the first time. And, but in, in that time, I mean, I didn't know that I had met this luminary and 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 but when we were walking here, he told me he was writing a gay hero. And he was writing a play called Caprice, and it was about a gay hero. And at the time, I didn't understand hero in the sense of the journey of the play. Right. right. But I did need to hear that there were gay heroes, though. Yes, indeed. I come from I'm like the last generation of the self-hating homo. And so anything to pull me out of that and and then I lost his phone number. And then I, I, I thought his name was Stephen for some reason. And then I, I, I you know, it, it, I lost the number, so I lost the contact. And then one day I was walking down Christopher Street, and this was in July. And there was a restaurant across from Ty's. And I think it was the Italian or Duff's, I think it was. Mm. And it had an outdoor uh, a closed in thing. And he came out and said those these words, the word, you do exist. And then we stayed together from that point. And, oh. and it was and I then and it was at that point I would walk down the street and then I realized I had met someone of uh stature. Notoriety. We yeah. all have stature. Everyone has stature, but he had some notoriety, you know, yeah. Whittacred notoriety. Yeah. And then I went, and I was in school. I was, I was failing. For what? I was in college, but it was not for me. And I, yeah. I was in the wrong place. And then he was doing Caprice, but they had lost the space. They used to be at the Evergreen Theater on 11th Street, and they lost that space, so they were gypsies, and they hadn't found a place to do a play. So the rehearsal period became very long just because they needed to keep busy and then finally it was getting up and and so i went they were rehearsing at the evergreen caprice they were about to lose the 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 people of the baha'i faith bought the building and the company was way in debt to back rent and the baha'i people said look if you when we ask you to move if you move with no fuss we'll forgive all the debt so you can't argue that. And so gratefully, Charles said that. And so um, I went and then I got invited to go to the rehearsal of Caprice. And I walked in and the first thing I ever saw, there was a Zuni Feinschmecker, played by Black Eyed Susan, has this speech, which is just, I think it's out of... Um, it's out of like the Marquis de Sade or something. It's just filth-laced. And it, and <laughs> the first thing I, and he embuggered a Exactly. And I was like, Holy and then shit. the company, was, and it was just a filth. One, and, and it's an amazing speech. And it stops to show all the time. It was an amazing, amazing speech. And then at the same theater, they were doing a fundraiser called Taboo Tableaus. Mm. And they did it that by now the company was in existence for about 10 years. So they were doing a scene from each of the productions. Yeah. And so I kind of got a crash course in what the ridiculous was. And I met um, dear George Osterman that afternoon and he was a pretty boy and, mm-hmm. and we were about the same age, although he got to the city and into the theater well before I did, he came here younger than I did. And then that night, we got came for the show, and I met George as Bunny Beswick, and he was like the he was the tart in Hot Ice, and um, <laughs> and it was so astounding to me, and mm. because you know I, I knew I was a little drag queen all my life, but it was a dirty little secret, right? And I didn't realize it what a significant part of my being it was. I, at the time, I thought I was just this sick queer. Oh. And there, I had no one to tell me otherwise. And then 
the last scene of the the benefit was the death scene from Camille. And I went into the dressing room and Charles was dressing up to be Marguerite Gautier. And he had these beautiful big blue eyes and he did that. And he was putting his eyelashes on and he was transforming. And suddenly I realized, oh, wait, there is a place for me. And I don't think I'm a, I mean, I am nuts and I probably am going to die nuts, but that it's a different kind of nuts. It's a, a you know, pure nuts that I have today. But then it was corrupted with self-hatred and stuff. And so finally there was a place for me. Yes. And then I was writing this. And again, I'd seen these rehearsals for thousands of times. because there was, And finally it was going to be done at the performing garage. So I went to the performing garage. I helped out where I could. But then I had to write a paper for school and I didn't want to be intrusive. So I went up into the rafters of the performing garage while they were rehearsing. As I had seen it a million times and I had to write this paper. And I'm sitting up on the stairs and it was freezing. It was February yeah. and there was no heat in that room. And then Charles came up to me and said, I just wrote a part and there's nobody to do it. Everyone else is doubling and we're going on tomorrow night. Do you want to do it? And I, I was so nervous because I had, again, I had no belief in myself. I had no, and um, I went on the next night with no, oh just very Lord. little rehearsal, just into the, and it was the Trocadero Gluxinia Ballet. Because in the play, um, Adrian Caprice's lover and uh, his, his twisted adamant, his rival is trying to make, Caprice jealous so he he tricks Adrian into going to the ballet and then so I played Flossie Flanagan and I was the ballerina of course the, and and Larry Ray who was the the artistic director of the Trocadero Glogzinia he was Ekaterina Sobechinskaya all the people took like Russian names <laughs> and I had a mustache at the time and um and then some ch- Charles said, you'll have to shave that mustache. And I said, okay. And I ran to shave it. And apparently Larry Ray said, oh, he's going to go far. He's willing. And I thought, well, look at that. And and then I was in like a Sylphie thing and I had this horrible wig. They found me this red wig. It had a big ball patch in the front. (laughs) But I went on and and I got my first laugh. I got my first big laugh. And I was hooked. And I would go on as the ballerina and then... Caprice would pull me off the stage and he would come on and finish the dance. And uh-huh. I would run by and my he'd grab me by that arm and pull me off. And then I would come on all bound and gagged. And it was, that was my first moment wow. in, uh, on stage. Wow. Well, yeah. we have two minutes to break, but I really I, I want to make this point about the, the, the understanding of just quickly some nuances of, I remember when we were talking, you said it wasn't gay theater. And, and, and so much of what I read said it was that. And I so loved your nuanced description of what this kind of acting and what this genre was. Charles objected to the term gay theater. He said he did not want to do to theater what people do to people. Yes. But what the ridiculous is, is the first honest gay voice. It's not necessarily gay. Vo- it's because if it's gay theater, what are all the heterosexual actors yes. in the company? What is what is their work? Right. We're, we're totally. all, it's we're all people. And, and gay um, voice. It's the first honest gay voice. It's the first. Charles said, if the queer is going to kill himself, he should have a good reason. <laughs> And there's a great space to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue with Everett Quinton on the edge of every day. Stay tuned. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Every moment. And we are back with Everett Quinton. Every moment on the edge of every moment of every day, of every life. Uh, okay, so <laughs> so you, boom, you're on, you're a part, you're a member of this, you're, you're doing your shows, you're learning your craft. Um, and for the sake of all the, that I want to talk about in, in the next section, I want to I'm going to jump ahead to uh, the mystery of Irma Vep. You would say that that pretty much puts you guys on a serious on the serious map. It, it It's not really. It, it was Charles's most accessible play. Yes. And it, but it's certainly, and, and that makes sense. Most accessible. And of course, sad, sad, but realistically, that's often the case. The thing that the most people can wrap their brains around is the thing. But, but for years, I thought, what does this have to do with our mandate? And then my friend Daphne Gross, who was, uh, 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 she did everything at the theater. She was, uh, everything. If you needed something done, Daphne would do it. Although she couldn't be the dresser in the play. She was my sister Mary was running the sound and Daphne was supposed to be the dresser. Oh. And Daphne said, I can't do this, I can't do this. So they switched. And my sister Mary came back and did the the play. But one day we were eating and she said, I can't tell if the Ermavep is the best play ever written or the worst piece of shit ever perpetrated on a public. <laughs> and I I thought and I for years wondered why it was um uh part of our mandate and then i realized that the entire play is abstract it's an abstractive it's an abstract expressionist work of art and when i when that dawned on me it it suddenly it it moved it into another place for me so it is in it's but it's but like we got so much accolades because but it's like you know the song ymca Remember, remember Patrick Wetzel, we were at Disneyland and the song came on and we go, why MCA and all these older people and Patrick turned around and said, it gets them all the time ever. And yeah. it, but it's, it's like, exactly. But the mystery of Ramavep is just like that too. But Charles always said that cliche is the armature of the absolute. <laughs> and what he did was he strung together all these cliches and so you get it, but the play is so nonlinear that it it it's so. It, when I realized that, I thought suddenly all the questions you didn't have to you have to answer actors' questions, but often it's it doesn't mean anything. Just go once you explain the premise, you go. So like because when we did Salambo right after, we were back into the daring thing. We were crucified. <laughs> so. You know, well, so you, and that, they also, was, yeah, a little and, unfortunate. And slice and dice like, after getting a lot of accolades too. That's part of right, it. Exactly, exactly. We got lulled into the accolades. Right, and right then, exactly. <laughs> Just to, don't get too big for your britches, Bob. Exactly, exactly. Oh my God. Okay, so 1987. No your partner. 
the comp you're grieving he he passes he, the, you're grieving your partner your love the company is grieving and you make a decision to step in as the artistic director was that an easy obvious choice was that a difficult well, choice? had charles did say i would be it oh okay it, it was mentioned so i have to say that but there was a, almost a court intrigue but of course but it, it didn't it didn't last that long. And the, the fact is that, you know, like when a congressperson dies and their spouse comes in to take it over, that's what it needed. And I don't think anyone else would have. And by this point, I had gained some traction. I had some recognition. And um, I don't think it would have happened any other way. I, I just don't think so. And, and we managed to keep it going for another 10 years. And I'm very proud of the work I did as artistic director there. And but again, it was always I used to say it was running like hell to stay behind, and it, it was so painful to not be able to get your head. It was always worried about money all the time, so it was often the work. There was joylessness, not on stage, was, not in the work, but there was a but in the a, struggle. In the struggle, yeah. In the struggle, and that mm-hmm. that you know that that that's a constant for any artist. It just it it's remarkable how that is so pervasive in every aspect of art, and mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. not off, off the beaten track. Well, that's for another show. Uh, I want to get on to something ab- about you. Um, okay, so s- the social justice streak that was did, did you always have it uh, my guess is maybe it was clearly there or was it discovered by the confluence of the times that you grew up in the the of being gay of being and coming to grips with that of being a member of the ridiculous theater because you know was that that just as a part of all of the work that you seemed to have done I grew up in my parents, they, they would part, there was decency in my family, mm. but there was, un, what is the word? Um, Jackie Kennedy said it about Queen Elizabeth. Un, there was a lack of curiosity and they were uncurious people. And so there was no, and, and my father was a rabid right wing Republican and my mother was a lefty. So, and they were both dopes. So it, it didn't matter. <laughs> they were left and right of dope. But it was, uh, so I didn't know. And yeah, until you get older and you, you find your way. And then suddenly. And this whole social justice streak mm-hmm. emerged. It, but it came into me. It came in pretty early. It came, yeah. it's, uh, particularly around, I mean, I got here into the city. This is before I met Charles, was when Anita Bryant started carrying on. Oh, my Lord. And I remember going on that first march. And I remember um, becoming aware of that. And then suddenly I'm in the midst of this this gay culture demanding the equality. Equality, yeah. And so I was was aware of it. And um, This is a perfect seg into... mm -hmm. Into recovering racism. Recovering racism. That's my new. That's thing. your new thing. That's your my... new focus. Um, so well, talk to me. What is it? William Kunstler once said that all white people are racist. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been thinking about that for years since he said it. And we are. I, I just want White people are victims of racism as well. White people in this country are victims of racism because racism is so inculcated into us from when we're little kids Mm -hmm. that we grow up in it and you're buying the bullshit hook, line, and sinker. Line and sinker. So, and, and so, like, there was a judge, like, I, I was, I remember being a teenager when the when Martin Luther King was killed mm. and the the turbulence in my neighborhood and we were all afraid but no one in my family 
like especially they all everyone in my family thought Malcolm X was a bad guy. Oh, same with my family. Right. So I didn't know this till later yeah. that Malcolm X was in, in a sense of freedom brilliant. for his people and the brilliance. Exactly. So we grow up in it. And then we have to learn to white people need to learn to shake it off. And and, and I don't think racism is the I because I'm someone was just talking to me, a friend of mine. I forget her name, but there is no racism. We're only we're one race of people. And but what what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois called negrophobic dehumanization. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to call it dehumanization. Oh, and, completely. And and that's how they could they, that's how they could have slaves. They could justify having exactly. slaves. Exactly. And we talked exactly. about who that we talked about the documentary who put the Klan in Ku Klux Ku Klux Klan, and it was all of these oppressed uh, UK Scottish people that that went that lived in the South and and eventually became the oppressors because they. Right. When, they when, wanted to make the money from somebody owning other human beings. And we've got to demand equality and this um, and, and we've got to use like, um, I guess, um, what is the thing, the, the college course, the racist thing, the big deal, everyone, the Republicans are all up in arms about Oh, teaching teaching racism in and in, in, yes in, in what's it called? See, what's... See, um, oh dear lord! God in heaven! I know it's a it's hell. The college thing. Yeah, it's and teaching um, what actually happened racially and right. and, and it, I think it's it, oh, I don't know, but I I'm not that smart, and but we need to to change we've got to change and it's well, got to change somewhere and it, it's but it's but okay doesn't... so we all have bias and we all have and we all know do those of us who are willing to make these changes and willing to admit that it, there's there is racism and that we all have unseen bias in us and we all do white people do benefit from the system that is completely set up to keep black people down so Not just, it, it, it's all people of color are dehumanized in this yeah, country. All people of color. Exactly. Gotten of course. It's, all, it, gotten it's anyone that isn't perceived as white. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's so terrible. this is an interesting thing. I found uh, I'm a recovering racist paper by James Holbrook. And he uh, he said, oh, as one white commentator wrote, shedding racism is not like taking off a coat. It lies deep in the cells of the body, the detritus of the brain, the chambers of the heart, and the dark recesses of the soul. And, and I mean, you know, we, right? And it's taught to us from when we're children. And it's well, then, so and, you and, go, like we were told, black girls had razor blades in their hair. And I'm thinking, what the fuck are you going to do with razor blades in their fucking hair? It, it, you know, and so we well, learn. How, so how are we, how are we going to, how do we want to move this forward as people who feel strongly about this and people who want to use our art to do well, this? Well, it has to be in our place. It has to be in our plays. It has to be in our plays. It has to be in our speaking out. And, but also, we've got to pray about it. We must pray about it. We must ask God to come into this and eradicate it. It's 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 because it's gone on too far here. It, it's 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 it's. Well, it's fascinating that pe- lots of people who pray to God do do also keep this alive. And um, so well, anyway, exactly, exactly. Um, so like we, it, we are. Time for another break. This is a fabulous conversation. Jean and I want to talk about not enough time to kick all the ass. There is not. And to talk about the character that you're creating that's gonna that is gonna deal with this issue. When we come back with Everett Quinton. Stay tuned. 
join us every Tuesday at 4pm Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behavior to get that inside track, what to do, what to avoid, or what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4pm, every Tuesday for the Mind Behind Leadership, here live on talkradio.nyc. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. all pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Chipping around, kick my brain to the ground. These are the days it never I remember doing that backstage during every show. We would stand backstage and do that to every word. Oh, my God. Just like crazy people. Thank God. Thank God for you. Um, Okay. Diving back into what we were talking about with Everett Quinton, um, critical race theory. Thank you very critical much. Critical race theory. That's oh, my God. Um, so what are we, let's talk about your next character that is related to your wanting to deal with this issue. My next character, who I've, I've already done her twice, is Antifa. It's, hi, I'm your Antifa. Life's a banquet and these fascist motherfuckers are trying to starve us to death. You know what? I wish every fascist in the world would commit suicide. I, I stole the that. candles. I, get the, the edge, ice out. <laughs> on the edge of freedom, baby. No, no, I stole that joke from John Rivers one day when I was a kid. She said, I wish every roach in New York City would commit suicide. And that's what fascists, well, roaches are better than fascists. Roaches, roaches are just gorgeous little creatures. Fascists are pieces of... So, so Antifa, how does Antifa relate to this, this um, recovering... Well, it's a sad world we live in. And the and racism began with the oligarchs. Racism in America began with oligarch slave owners who dehumanized this bunch of people who, when they were brought over, I read this great book, Religion in America. And the Africans who were brought here were not savages. They were not... Well, of course they weren't. They were... Um, developed humans with their own rich culture and understanding. Before before the Portuguese got to Africa, by by comparison, Africa was first world. Africans had already figured out how to incinerate human waste and keep their, their, their places fabulous. And then these bozos, illiterates from Portugal who just wanted their money came in. And then, so you get these people, they were not without culture. They were not without religion. They not. were not without things that move fabulous Soul people. Soul and spirit and understanding and, and they brought depth. Them here, they brought them here, stuck them in this this servitude. And, Absolutely. And, 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 and even like the Muslims, when the Muslims enslaved Africans in the Major Minor and the Near East, they, when that the slaves converted to Islam by because they were there. Mm-hmm. The Islams had the Muslims had to free them. 
Yeah. Because it's in the Quran, you can't enslave yeah, a Muslim. Right. But in the Bible, you cannot enslave Christians. But what did the Christians do? They just reinterpreted it. They reinterpreted the book sure. and then continued the dehumanization of the To justify it. Okay. To enough. make money. For yeah, money. To, to, oh, totally. You to cannot money. serve Capitalism. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. And, you know, I saw the speech that got Martin Luther King shot. I was watching the speech one day and I'm thinking, oh, that's what got him shot. Because Martin Luther King said, God will break the back of the arrogant nation. Yeah. And, 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 no. and the arrogant nation is. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. I want us to get to Antifa. But Antifa is I want to. I want it known, I want it on my tombstone that I am an anti-fascist. And I want it known. And my, my the goal of my life is to not let, well, anyone go unremembered. But the Nazis killed my gay brothers and sisters. Yeah, true. But nothing. 150,000 people, queer people, were killed in the concentration camps. And when everyone else felt sorry for everyone else, no one felt sorry for the queers when they got out. The queers were still these dirty fucking queers who should have got what they got. And and so my goal is to, uh, I want to die an anti-fascist. And, and what... Like I, my first, not my first antifa were neo Nazis. What's new about it? What would would going to have self cleaning ovens? What 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 do neo Nazis do? Nazis are not going to get better. It's not going to get better. And the what what does Jesse Dollimore call them? The low information crowd. The low information crowd. Once what? Who said it? Who's the one who said they came for the Jews? I did nothing. Nothing. They came for the so and so. I did nothing. They came for me, and there was nobody to help me. Who's going to help you, low information boobs? Who's going to help you? And and well, they they they, no one, and they 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 only. And I want to write a play. I'm going to put in a play where this guy goes in a time machine and goes back and stops. Nathan Hale from going into that bar and go in and say, Nathan, sweetie, they know you're going you're to get caught and then you're going to get killed. And then the Nazi motherfuckers are going to take over in 2022. So don't waste your time. Go back to Connecticut. Be a school teacher. Get a cute girlfriend oh and God. enjoy yourself. It's, it's and all these things that we're taught is all rubbish. And then these morons that that like if I worked like you go to this Congress I have never in my life, every job, even the worst jobs, my colleagues were all kind of smart. <laughs> Imagine being a congressperson and the people in that Congress are dumb as a bag of fucking hammers. And it's, it's, yeah. so what do we, where do you go? You have where nothing you but go? your voice. Where do you go? What, you have nothing exactly. but your voice. What's but, the, I was but, talking about, go ahead. You've got to be willing. I remember with homophobia. I was like afraid. I still am at times, but I think, oh, the, the, they're going to get me. They're going to get me. And then I realized the only thing you have to fear is dying. Yeah. All they can do is kill you. So fuck them. And it's the same with these fascist motherfuckers. Yeah, All they there. can do is kill you. We're there. And, and I hate fascists. You know, I hate, I hate, well, not you know, authoritarianism, Stalinism. Yeah. Um, yeah. All that stuff. Not just, the, I, I mean, I get the, I get the, the economic differences and the political differences, but it's all authoritarian and oh, totally. it's all the same and and, and completely and, and based on capitalism and 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 our climate change. It's all connected. It's and well, race. It's all well, connected. Look at, look at South America and every fascist coup in yep. South America was instituted by the. Oil companies. Yeah, like I just like I why did Eisenhower go and befriend Francisco Franco in Spain? And why did Eisenhower allow Mosadek to be overthrown? Why? Because of oil. And I mean if there's all this oil, share the fucking money. Yeah. Like what's this? What is it? Uh, the what is it? Gambia now? They just found all this oil in Gambia, 
Yeah. And the fucking authoritarian leader of Gambia is living like a prince. His son drives, has like three cars that, and, and the Gambians are starving. Okay. Well, we've got a break from people. that. We've got a break from that. If you want to find those people, I, I'm and with you. Now there I am. Now look at me. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> no, and, and no, I got, want we only have three minutes till we're ending. So I, I want, want Antifa you to plug your stuff. on my gravestone. Yes, and I want you to plug um, uh, your la- the last yes. ELC Good Gifts ELCA Good Gifts catalog. And I will tell you about it when we come back. No, we, we this is the end. This, this is, is the end of oh, our show. Send your checks to Grace and St. Paul's Church, 123 West 71st Street, New York, New York, 10023. ELCA Good Gifts. We send goods and things to people less fortunate than ourselves and it's our advent project and i'm pushing it elca good gifts send your checks made out to grace and saint paul's church one two three west 71st street new york new york one zero zero two three anything five dollars ten dollars we can you can get chick we can get chickadees and you can buy mosquito nets for people that need mosquito nets you can get water water um purification systems for people who need it send your checks send your checks made out to grace and saint paul's church yes and it will this will be in this will be in the notes they will be able to one two three west 71st street new york new york one zero zero two three i never have this opportunity to push this but it's our advent it's our advent appeal and buy someone a chicken yes <laughs> buy someone a chicken buy someone a chicken buy the go my okay little so well this was a glorious me? glorious passionate <laughs> conversation I want you to know that you can find Everett at everettquinton.net. There is a wonderful book on the theatrical life and times of Charles Ludlam in the Ridiculous Theatrical um, Company by David Kaufman. If you're interested in in further research on that genre slash company, Um, if you are interested in checking me out, go to sandrabargeman.com. And if you are interested in the CD, live CD recording of uh, The Edge of Every Day, you can find that at Amazon. You can also find it on Spotify and CD Baby. So now, remember, folks, next Monday. St. Paul's Church, 123 West 71st Street, New York, New York, 10023. And next Sunday? Perfect. And And next Monday. And next Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, And remember, you are always at the edge of the miraculous. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend, for being on my show. I love your passion. Grace and thank you. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern, on talkradio.nyc. 
tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.